0: Church, if you will remain standing as we prepare to read God's Word this morning together. We will be studying from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2, verse 2 through verse 16. Let us hear the Word of the Lord together. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of, uh, of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is, that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not, doesn't cover her head, head she should have her hair cut off but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved let her head be covered a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of god so too woman is the glory of man for man did not come from woman but woman from, came from man neither was man created for the sake of woman but woman for the sake of man this is why a woman should have her symbol have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering? If anyone wants to argue about this, We have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. You may be seated. Now, I thought about having a little bit of fun with you this morning. I thought about having the elders' wives come in with head bonnets on (laughs) and just see how people would respond to that. Um, Can I just go ahead and put the, just punch it out there where we're going to land on this? It's it's right in the title. It's not about head coverings. Okay? Just want to go ahead and put it out there. It's not about head coverings. And the fact that we're in a room right now and not one woman has a head covering on, I think you're going to agree with me on that. Um, but you may not know why. And that's okay because, honestly, this is a difficult ta- pa- uh, passage we're going to study this morning. There's so many different, really complex things that we got to try to mine through. And and, and it's, it's, it's been a really tough passage. I can't remember a time in recent... ...history where I've spent so much time studying as broadly as I have on one passage... ...than I have right here with this one today. I was listening to a podcast this week with a panel of pastors... ...and they were talking about the topic of preaching... ...and particularly the joys and difficulties for the preacher himself... And one of the pastors noted, and please note, uh, ladies, I am not in any way trying to make some unfair uh, connection between preaching and the sermon development and uh, labor and pregnancy, but that's what he compared it to, okay? And I'm going to tell you why he did, because I think I kind of agree with him. He says, of course, every mother loves her children and wants the best for them, and every mother knows the process of pregnancy, though, and labor and delivery are all really, really difficult and tireless Efforts, And, of course, that's beyond investing and providing in the feedings and all the different things that go along with child rearing. He noted that he feels like sermon development is the same as we dive in. A pastor or preacher dives into a text, wrestles with its meaning, considers how to apply it to the people he loves very much, and he compared it to the labor of love. That it's a labor of love, and that, um, but nonetheless, the labor of love is still labor indeed. Right, And I think every, every mom in here can say hearty amen to that. You love your children, but that process, that season of life is always difficult. And I think I kind of agree with the, the analogy he's trying to make here, especially when we come to passages like we come to today. Because Paul's instructions to women in the church on head coverings is a very nuanced thing, and, and it feels like an entirely different world than what you and I inhabit. But I think once we get into this passage together, you're going to realize there's an incredibly... Um, Some really relevant main point that Paul is going to help us see here that's, as I've said before, I said already, it's not about head coverings. And um, I hope that's what we will be able to do this morning. Our process of interpreting the Bible, what some call hermeneutics, is an important process. And how we do that is very important. And maybe you'll glean some of that this morning as we dig into this about how you would properly study God's Word yourself and the kind of tools that we need for these things. Because if we don't have the right tools, we end up doing a couple of bad things. We'll either, one, read into the text what we want to see there. Or oh, we will ignore things that are actually clearly said there. And so bad hermeneutics, bad biblical interpretation happens on both sides of the aisle, brothers and sisters. On the conservative side, as well as the more progressive liberal side. And we've got to be careful with that as we study texts, and especially studying texts like this one today. When you want to study a text, you should have at least three tools. You should think number one you need some kind of understanding of the context in which the text arises what was paul's day what was the corinthian church what was all the things going on behind that things that we'll begin to unpack a little bit this morning you need a good grasp of some level of grammar um, some level of literature understanding how words fit together and how it's faithful to how they were used back when the author originally gave us this text you got to have some kind of insight there and most importantly you need a redemptive historical understanding of the bible you need to understand how the bible just fits together and be able to see from genesis to revelation this one big story of the gospel and how this one text will fit into that story of the gospel because when we do don't do these three things uh, uh, well what ends up happening is we make the text say what we want it to say or we ignore what the text actually says and so i say that to you this morning as a little primer to get into this because we have some very difficult things before us. And let me just kind of give you some of the thornier issues we're going to run up against. One, what is Paul's usage of the word head or kafile from the Greek? What, how is he using that word? Because that's a big, big debate. Is Paul addressing men and women, or is he addressing husbands and wives? Because the word aner in Greek for men is also the same word they use for husbands, and the word gynechos in Greek for women is also used for wives, and depending on what translation you're using this morning, you will be, one, ESV tends to go more husbands and wives, and the CSB, which I'm using this morning, tends to go men and women, and I believe it's somewhere in between. So, uh, but I think the reason I'm choosing the CSB this morning is because I think ultimately the flow of the passage seems to be a little clearer as we're getting into a difficult text this morning. So, that's the second thing we're dealing with here. As it pertains to head coverings, is Paul talking about hair? Or is he actually talking about like veils and coverings of some sort, cloth coverings? And then last, and probably one of the most, most heated issues, is when Paul gives instructions to both men and women about prayer and prophecy in the local church, Um, how do we resolve that with texts like 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll cover in a few weeks, or with 1 Timothy 2.15, he doesn't permit a man to teach or have authority over men. How do we wrestle with these things that's faithful to the text and what Paul is trying to get at versus what Paul gives instruction in other places? So, as you can tell, we have a lot to try to cover this morning. But here's one thing I'm quite sure about. I'm not sure after all the last couple weeks of studying over this text and reading this that all my answers are are answer, all my questions are answered about this text and that's okay and i'm quite sure i'm not going to answer all your questions this morning but i am extremely positive that we will arrive at the essential point and principle of the text because i think that's expressly clear here for paul and it's it's going to be this point redeemed men and women get this okay pay attention Redeemed men and women in the church should seek to glorify and honor God in public worship, okay? And do so by honoring God's beautiful creational order in our interdependent yet distinctive responsibilities inherent in God's good design. That's a mouthful, yeah? Let me say it again because I know you're going to want that one. Redeemed men and women in the church should seek to glorify and honor God in public worship, by honoring God 's beautiful creational order in our interdependent yet distinctive responsibilities inherent in God's good design. that's the main idea of this text. We can, we can tussle with certain aspects and implications of certain things that might be very difficult to understand, but no one can read this text in light of everything that we know about where Paul's at in his letter to the First Corinthians and to the Corinthians. And argue that that's not the central idea and I think understanding context a little bit here where Paul is will help you know why that's the main idea because we're starting chapter 11 and from chapter 11 through 14 Paul will devote the rest of his time of instruction to the Corinthian church by focusing in on public worship in the church the gathering of the church and what is proper and good order in the church. And so here in chapter 11 today, decorum and honor in the worship setting. Next week, the misuse of the Lord's table and the right, proper understanding of the Lord's table. In chapters 12 through 14, we're going to get a cornucopia of things. Spiritual gifts, orderly worship, unity and diversity among the body of Christ, and the way of love. All of that's set in the context of Paul's concerns about the church's public gatherings, what they are displaying to the world, and more than that, what they're actually saying about God. So understanding this helps us see and understand Paul's interests in this thing, this weird topic about head coverings that feels, like, um, feels miles away from where you and I live. His chief aim is to help the church keep Christ and keep the glory of God at the center of our worship. End of statement. Full stop. Because if there's anything that shines brightly in the local church, it's our worship. As it it, it stands so brightly against the backdrop of all the self-promoting and the self-aggrandizing pagan worship of Corinth. And frankly, the self-promoting, self-aggrandizing worship that goes on in our world ever since the Garden. In fact, ever since Adam and Eve's exodus from the garden in Genesis 3, all of worship from a human perspective has been making God into our own image, yes? Has been seeking to promote our own glory and our own giftedness rather than displaying God's glory by us bearing His image as God's people in the church. That's Paul's concern because it's the problem That is as old as time itself. That's the problem. It's so much not alive just in Paul's day, but it's very much alive in our day, and it's alive in the American evangelical experience just as much. It's this core principle that runs up under all of Scripture that is key to best understanding what Paul's trying to help us see this morning. So my goal this morning is very simple. I wanted to spend the bulk of our time just trying to steadily walk through this passage examine it together try to answer as many of the questions as i can that Paul's trying to unpack here and at the end draw some conclusions um, from some essential what i'm gonna call gospel oriented aims that you and i will benefit from as the church as we worship together not just here but wherever the lord may lead us in the future so let's just talk about that first section let's just kind of walk through the passage here verses two and three paul sets out his aim he says it there, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. Verse 2 there, right? Paul's concern clearly is orderly worship. I praise you. So there's something about what Paul is doing here where he's making praise for what the people uh, in Corinth, or at least some contingent in Corinth, are, are doing. They, he's praising them because in some sense, there's something still there. As messy as Corinth was, he's still and, and pleased the fact that there's some passing down the traditions that have been handed down to them through the apostles, through him, and, he's, and they're trying to take them seriously. Now listen, this prompts a really... Good thought for us and something i want to encourage us in this morning it's a wonderful reminder that every church has plenty of room to grow yes i think you can look at our church and you see plenty of room uh, evidences where we need to grow and the lord's doing that and he's been faithful to us in that every church has plenty of room to grow but to the degree that a church is seeking to make jesus visible make jesus seen and keep him at the center and this is just a reminder things are probably not as bad as they may seem sometimes it's very easy to criticize. It's very easy to look at a church and go, man, they are way off the bus. And I get to know many faithful pastors in this town who are pastoring churches in various contexts and difficult places. And I can assure you that if their pastors represent anything about what that church's priorities are, if Jesus is seen, even if their churches aren't everything that they could be, God himself is pleased with it. And if Paul, and just look, that's the way he ministers. He never throws the baby out with the bathwater. As, as rough as he's been dealing with all these difficult things in the Corinthian church, he's very quick to remember praise where he can. And that's what he's doing here. So, since the focus of chapters 11 through 14 concern corporate nature of worship, what is Paul meaning when he talks about traditions? Well, I think... In my estimation, based on that study, is that he is pleased that at least to some contingent in the church are holding on to that apostolic message of the gospel that has been passed down to them and any of the related, acceptable traditions that have been passed down with it that are helping with the church's mission and their witness to the gospel. See, for him, corporate nature of worship is is so essential to getting the gospel right. We can rightly presume that what he means by a tradition here, that he has in mind a kind of accepted tradition that was being passed along with the gospel as the churches were being planted across the Greco-Roman world, he, whether it be him or Peter or anyone else, that he, he says there must be something that, they were, that was fairly standard. They were probably not unique to Paul. They were probably some, some accepted practice, common to come into Christ's church, wherever it was spreading into the world. But he says something in verse 3, but. Big transition, right? I'm not going to say big but, but I'm going to say big but. It's a big but, right? I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. This transition here helps us set an order that as pleased as he is with maybe the attitude towards passing on these traditions, there's still something he wants them to press in deeper, to think more deeply about, about the importance of worship norms that have been passed down to them. And he doesn't want them to, he wants them to think more deeply about them than more mere ritual or formality or tradition. No, he, he outlines a series of relationships here that are key to understanding public worship. And that seems odd, right? And these... But these, but these relationships will help them understand and engage more richly in worship together. And so he uses this word head here. The first of the more thorny issues that we will run into in this text. The word head here, which is the word in Greek, kophale. And there's three general ideas on how this word is used. It's used as head or authority over or head over. It tends to read a more heavier uh, Uh, a hierarchical or patriarchal way of the words there and but the problem with that emphasis sometimes it becomes a modern reading back into the ancient reading because the ancient range the foreign common usage of this didn't really have this as much so we have to do we have to wrestle with that the other side the more common way probably the most typical usage of this word is source that the head is the source of the body um but even then as theologians wrestle with this and wrestle with paul's wording in the in the in the complex greek that's here it tends to flatten the relationship between christ and man and men and women and certainly flattens the relationship between jesus and um, the godhead and so this doesn't seem to be a really good way in which to approach this verb i mean this word uh, head it seems to create a number of challenges when you get into all the details. But there's a third way, and I think it's probably um, the way that I prefer, and it's the way that I think a lot of folks that I trust prefer, and it's honestly got a lot of traction across varying sides of the evangelical Protestant world. The word, the head, means preeminence. It finds one, be, finds one finding their being in something else. Um, it's, it's typical usage of the first century Greek. Um, but it seems—I'm sorry—it's it's typical. And David Garland, one of the a great New Testament scholar here in America, has does some of the best work on this particular issue because he says, and I agree with him, it does justice to both the creational ordering that God seems to imply here. Paul implies here between Jesus and and man, and husbands and wives, or men and women, whichever way we take that. And certainly, it does honor to the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and the Godhead. So there's a distinction in some ways there that we got to be careful. Preeminence, in terms of us understanding it more properly, is a kind of honor. It's a kind of glory that precedes another. So if you begin to think about preeminence in that way, when you look at these three different relationships that Paul unpacks here, it helps us, I think. The first preeminence relationship, he says, there is the head of every man right? The head of every man is Christ. Christ is the head of every man. Christ precedes or is preeminent to man. Why? Because he's firstborn of many sons. That's 1 Corinthians. I mean, sorry, Colossians chapter uh, 1. I'll just read it to you real quick. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. for everything was created by him and in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have created were um, so have, have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. So do you see that? He is Going before, he's preeminent to the church. He is the representative head of the church in every way, shape, form. There is no church, and that's Christ is the head of the church. Just like Adam, (laughs) excuse me, Adam is the head of the human race, figuratively speaking, the the representative head. So, So Jesus is the representative head. So understanding it from a preeminent standpoint, you understand that as Redeemer, incarnate God, Jesus is head of every man right? In no way does this diminish Christ. It doesn't make him equal to man. But he's still Lord and Savior. But it fits nicely with those theological places like Jesus being the second Adam. He's the elder brother of a new redeemed race of people. A new human race, redeemed image bearers of God. So then then you keep on carrying the flow of Paul's thought. The second preeminent relationship between men and women that The woman is, I'm sorry, the man is the head of the woman, or the husband is the head of the wife. Again, whichever way we want to read that, I don't think it's particularly that essential that we make that a big issue here, but it is something that people wrestle with. But what does it mean? It means the man precedes the woman in creation. I mean, this is Genesis chapter 2 stuff right here, right? When we get down to verse 7 here, we're going to find out more for the men directly created by God and God created woman out of man. And we're going to deal with the thorny how to understand that in its regard, but we'll hold off for that in just a minute. But, but for us who are kind of in our little reformed cluster, our little classical Protestant cluster of people that are doing our work here, like we've always typically refer to Adam as the head of the human race, yes? We don't talk about Adam and Eve. Adam is our representative head. For the human race. And that's probably because he was created directly by God and a woman out of man. Not that woman does not bear the image of God. Why? How do we know that? Genesis 126. When God says, I created man in my own image, but male and female, both are created in his image, but there's a certain order when we drill down into the specifics of it in Genesis 2, where man is created first and then woman is created out of man because man, it's not good for man to be alone. And so as we venture deeper into this point, and we will here, we get to chapter, verses 7 and 11 here in just a little while, I just want to make sure we stay up front. This nowhere implies, and should never imply in any shape or form, that man is closer to God. Or that woman is um, inferior to man, or that man is superior to woman. And we'll get there. So right, I just want to pump the brakes on that for, for a second. But then he goes, then follow the, tra- the track, the logic here. He goes, and then, Jesus, then God is the head of Christ. He uses the Trinity. Now that seems odd. Is Christ lower than God? We would say absolutely not. Classical historical understanding of the Trinity says they're all equal in essence and all things there. But what Paul is carefully doing here. And he's distinguishing between the incarnate earthly ministry of jesus who goes as the second person of the trinity and he and he goes to accomplish the will of the father which we see in john the gospel of john and he's doing this he's separating that distinguishing that between the second person the logos the second person of the trinity he's saying there's a there is there is an analogous relationship here because the son though he is equaling the father in essence in his earthly ministry he's coming here so that he may bring glory to the father why? Because he's representing man to the Father for those who are saved. He's representing the elect, the redeemed, to the Father. Now, when you think about head in this relationship, I personally, and I hope it helps you, this seems so helpful to me. Preeminence recognizes the good order of a relationship by also avoiding those, those, those kind of characteristic kind of... Um, demeaning ways in which we sometimes talk about relationships between men and women for paul head means representative head because he's preeminent and friends you think that this may sound odd but it doesn't think about even our own common parlance we use the word head of household on our taxes Am I, you know, whatever that may be, whatever, I mean, our culture is not, by the way, in any way under-recognizes the, 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 the headship of the husband in the home or any of that kind of stuff, but we in our, even our own tax code say this. They have a head of household type of situation. We have congregation, uh, congressional representatives. Now, they think they're better than us sometimes, but they're not, and they serve at our own pleasure to represent our interests. I, as a lead pastor here, I am merely a representative of the elders in large way. And really, the elders are representatives of you, as we were a representative of you in the mission of this church. You may use the word first among equals, but that certainly does not give me any particular authority or power that is greater than the rest of the elders. We do this intentionally. We talk about this exhaustively in our members class. Because we do not want to make anything about one person or head or personality. That's just not how we do things. Or, here recently, I got to do a wedding with uh, you know, Lucas and Summer. And at the very end of the wedding, what is it that I say? I say, everyone, when I get you to introduce him, what is it that, that the pastor or preacher or officiant will say? It's my pleasure to introduce you to you today, Mr. and Mrs. Lucas Hutchinson. I didn't say Mrs. and Mr. Hutchinson. You know, Summer Hutchinson, right? I didn't do that, and that's not because there's anything less about Summer, or if I'd have said this about Amanda and me or whatever else. That's not how we do things. But we just know naturally there's something about the good order that is just good for the world, and we recognize that. So listen, as your pastor, who's is, is entirely too much of a reformed uh, theological geek as it is, I find this understanding just help. It enriches my understanding of of what Paul is trying to understand here the implications of course will become more clear as we walk through this but i hope that this helps you get where paul's trying to push us towards because now on that foundation paul will now turn in verses four through six to to the found uh to the return that uses as a foundation on which to instruct the church about this thorny issue about head coverings this very contextual thing that they're dealing with in Corinth, let's read through it. Verse 4, for every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. So here in verses 4 through 6, we get to the point. We get to the Paul's main concern. He puts his finger on the primary issue there. He instructs how men and how women who are to conduct themselves in public worship, particularly as it relates to um, uh, as it relates to uh, uh, the ministry of prayer and prophecy, or teaching and preaching, depending on, depending on you know, how we once we unpack that. The fact that Paul uses the majority of verses 4, 5, and 6 to focus on the, on the women or the wives here indicates that he has, there's something going on with some of the women in the church <clears throat> and some of the wives in the church. Now, I want to say something clear here. Paul's not picking on women. He's not being misogynistic. He's not saying, oh, you are got a line, lady, like that. He is dealing with an issue here because it has something to do with distracting the church from seeing Jesus that's what he's getting at the concern for Paul clearly is not that both men and women are praying and preaching in the gathering or praying and teaching however you want to use that word in fact Paul doesn't even criticize that he seems to um seems to accept it in some way again we'll deal with that here in a moment But Paul likely has in mind that wonderful prophecy of Joel 2, 28 and 29, where he says, in those last days, my spirit will fall and my sons and my daughters will prophesy. Talking about that eschaton when Jesus returns in that time of season here. That's probably what he has in mind. So he understands there's some level in the church beyond the elders where men and women are engaged in meaningful ministry of prayer and word together, whatever that may look like. And it's funny, let's just call it, let's put our finger on it for a moment. It's funny when we read a passage like this and it kind of like makes us feel a little uncomfortable about some theological assumptions that we have always carried, but we don't really know why. Well, this is one of those big deals. So let me just go ahead and put it out there. Heavy-handed complementarians, I'm a complementarian, okay? Heavy-handed complementarians and patriarchal types don't like passages like this, or perhaps try to nullify passages like this because they don't know how to relate it. They they go, ah, 1 Corinthians 14, and ah, 1 Timothy 2.15, and then just go, you know, then they just try to rewrite what this is trying to say here. Paul's not doing that. He's not doing that. On the other hand, you got our egalitarian friends who... Tend to have all men and women are all the same, and we do all these things together. He is he. He clearly they, you'll hear them shout from the rooftop. See, men and women are the same. They can do all the same things together. Both of those are overreaches. Both of those are overreaches. The emphasis for Paul, rather, is that some of the women seems some wives particularly, were dishonoring their husbands, and more than that, Christ in themselves. And why is this happening in the church that Paul's trying to put his finger on? Well, it's not stated entirely clearly in the passage itself, but we can deduce a few things if we know a little bit about the context. Number one, it could be that related to, it's related to that, that issue of sexual morality that Paul keeps bringing up in this, in this letter that that has been passively ignored by by the corinthian church in various ways so the influence of their former way of life may have not been fully mortified the fact that a woman cutting and shaving off her hair was connected in those days to prostitution or extramarital activities or at minimum promiscuous lifestyle that would not honor christ and the church and so paul sees this perhaps this is one one idea And he begins to worry about how many of the women in the church who are embracing those kinds of things are disregarding these things and how that honors Christ and honors the church in its public witness. witness. Another way that could be behind all this is it could be that Paul wishes to honor those more positive cultural norms so that it doesn't inhibit gospel witness, kind of close to what we just said. In Jewish culture, women were commonly wore... Uh, A veil in public as a sign of modesty, as a sign of respect for their husbands in in, in various ways. Even in the Greek culture, more affluent women especially would wear veils at times, similarly in a way to differentiate themselves not so much for honor of their husbands but to differentiate themselves from the common class or the more crude aspects of culture. They didn't want to be seen like those people. And so what would happen is and you got this church that's growing, and they're all meeting in houses, and, and wives are coming in between church and house, and house is the same thing as home. I mean, church is the same thing as home now. Probably what could be happening is that women are just going, okay, well, I don't need to wear these things anymore because this is a very familiar place. This is a safe place. So I don't have to wear the head coverings anymore. And Paul says, oh, we got to be careful because this is still a public place, and, it's still, and there's something good about these, these social norms that can be that help us show those distinctions of God's give God-given... Um, distinctions between him men and women that's another way i'm not suggesting that either one of these ways are all it could be partial it could be all of them i don't know i think the one i am most convinced of is that there probably is an overall overrealized view among some of the women in the church that's they where they started to believe that because christ had come they were free from the restraints of womanhood, and that being a wife was really second tier, third tier in their responsibilities. And and because, listen, even Paul, they would say, perhaps, this is just me conjecture here, didn't he tell the Galatians, there's neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Greek, or slave nor free. So perhaps they had gotten word and wind, or maybe Paul had even shared that in some context in this church. And they were just like, okay, so if that's the case then you know what who cares let's just throw off social restraint let's just show off um, those kinds of things and what was happening then for Paul and I think this is why Paul's addressing this is they're flattening the goodness of God's creational order and there's a reason why God does what he does Now we may not always know that and we may not always agree with it but there's a good reason there and Paul says by doing that You're disregarding how God has created and set the whole thing up so that it images forth His glory in the first place. Right? There was this attitude in the early church that Paul would address from time to time. And sometimes Paul created it where a negative attitude towards tradition as a whole. They were told by God, sometimes like Paul, that traditions were a distraction to the gospel. You can think about Galatians 1, six. you can think about Colossians 2.8. After all, Paul himself would be in fact in many places, right? That um, there's no spiritual validity for the church to continue in observing what? Jewish food rights, uh, dietary laws, uh, require circumcision, etc., etc., etc. But Paul is neither a legalist nor is he a liberationist. He's not interested in those kind of things. What he's interested in is worship. He's interested in whether or his people have the character of Christ. In that's not me this time. I don't know what that is. But the, he's interested in this. In case you were awake, now you're awake, okay? Um, he's interested. He's interested in their char- the character of Christ being formed in them. He's interested that his church displays the glory of God to the world. That's what he's concerned about. That's where his heart is. So whatever the case is, Paul clearly feels that the church should not jettison good creational order and the honor of good aspects and honor those good aspects of societal codes, particularly in the local church's worthy worship gathering. Why? Because the world, nor the church, benefits from a kind of Christianity that's ambiguous and autonomous, um, much like what he's been addressing already in chapters 8 through 10 about your personal liberty. Your personal liberty should never be put first. In the same situation here. Whatever liberation you have in Christ is wonderful, but the glory of God is preeminent. The, 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 the message of the gospel is preeminent. And so Paul is giving correction. He's giving instruction to actions and attitudes between the two genders, particularly between husbands and wives, perhaps, in corporate gathering. Um, it's not about the length of their hair, or wearing a hat or a veil, it's about something much deeper that should be enigmatic of the community of Christ. A culture of honor, a culture of interdependence between men and women, between husbands and wives, that exists to show forth the glory of God. So Paul puts the issue in the starkest of terms to the ladies. He says to them, if you will not cover your head, then you should shave your head. That seems kind of extreme. Um, I like Sinead O'Connor, but I'm not, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a look that I, you know, I don't know, just being honest. But what is he getting at? He's effectively saying, go ahead, go your own way, do what you're going to do. If you're, if you, if you're going to embrace this, then go ahead and do it. But let me just tell you up front, this is me, my words of what Paul is trying to say here. You will not be reflecting your new identity in Christ's wellness. He won't. See, Paul's concern is this. For a woman to jettison the tradition in favor of a thin view of autonomy or individuality, she's not only wrongly misunderstand, wrongly understands her, the goodness of her relationship with her husband, but more than that, she understands the goodness of her relationship with God and her Redeemer Jesus. And so let's be clear. Paul is not interested in mere adherence to cultural decorum or tradition for tradition's sake. He's drilling down deeper and deeper and deeper into that something much more essential. And that's what he gets at in verse 7 through 12. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Look, anyone who's been in the church probably gets pretty quickly what Paul's trying to do here. They understand what he's using in this Bible. He's grounding his instruction now. This, this, this headship, this, that he's been dealing with in verse 3, he's grounding it now in Genesis 1 and 2, which we've already kind of alluded to. And so he goes to verse 7. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God, so too a woman is the glory of God. Man. Now, again, one of those really weird, thorny verses that sometimes gets um, turned uh, upside down. So I want to take a careful look at it just for a few moments. Right. Some will overemphasize using texts like this. Again, this is when we don't really understand what's happening here and we tend to read our modern concerns back into the text. They'll read and overemphasize that that man has was created in the image of God and glory of God, and thus deduce that woman is second chair, that woman is inferior in some capacity, and that somehow, and some will even go so far as to say, man this is just closer to God. And I'll think that a closer reading of this, a closer examination of this text, will prove otherwise. It'll it'll warn us off of that error. So he's grounding this in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, you understand that Genesis 1 is a 30,000-foot view view of creation. And Genesis 2 is a 10,000-foot view. It's a a ground view of what's actually happening. The 30,000-foot view is the big picture. Both men and women are endowed with the image of God. Verse 126, chapter 120 uh Genesis 126, and given creation to mandate the creation mandate together. Both women and men and men are created in the image of God and given that mandate together. But in Genesis 2, he drills down a little deeper, he zooms in with more detail, and we see the intricate order of God's creation of mankind in fuller brilliant detail. It's there that we find that man was created first and woman was created out of the rib of Adam. Now why does that matter? I think, and I cannot say it better than what a commentator said it this week. A, an anglican uh scholar new testament scholar who's passed recently or passed a few years ago his name's leon morris we love leon morris in the reform side of things i'm just gonna be honest with you so most of my con- you have a lot of commentaries i you're gonna find him on my shelf a lot here's what he says the reason a man should not cover his head is not that he is is, is i'm sorry the reason that a man should not cover his head is that he is the image and glory of god In the creation story, we read that God made man in his own image, he says. Genesis 1 makes no distinction between the sexes at this point, but the glory is not even mentioned in the Genesis text as it is here with Paul. For Paul, glory is the focus, not image. Man shows forth God's glory as nothing else does. When people worship, this high dignity needs to be recognized that the glory of God is not to be obscured in the presence of God by covering the head of of the bearer. Paul is careful, though, not to say that the woman is made in the image of man because she's not made in the image of man. She is not. Thus, the woman should not be viewed in subjugation to men or inferior to them. It is true, though, her relationship to man is not the same as that of man to God, but she has her own place. But it is not the man's place. She stands in such a relationship, relationship to the man as does nothing else. And thus she is called the glory of man. And it is precisely the glory of man that should be veiled in the presence of God. In worship. God alone must be glorified in worship. Do you, so you see where he's getting at the the man who was created directly by god in in, a, in, a, in terms of analogy is concerned he should not he should not veil himself because it's what would be common practice when you go into pagan worship men would put all these garb on themselves and all these kind of things why to bring attention to themselves and to their high standing in society and so god says you're not the focus i am and you bear my image and so you, when you stand with your head uncovered, you are bearing my image. But the woman who I made out of your rib, she sows forth your glory. And I think we get an amen from every man here in the room, right? I mean, the beauty of the human, uh, human condition has to come from our ladies, yes? And that's what he says later on in the passage, which we'll get to here in just a minute. I mean, think about it. God pronounced that it was not good for man to be alone. In other words... The human project is not complete without both male and female in it. That is not saying that man, me, I'm not fully bearing the image of God on my own, that I need to have a woman to bear that image. Or same thing for a woman, she needs to have a man to bear the image of God in terms of our individual roles in society and the world. But what is fully completed when God makes the woman from his rib is that now the human project fully bears the image of God. Thus, when God gives this man the woman, he completes this vision of mankind. And she, more than the man, more fully displays the glory of man than does man alone. Isn't that wonderful? So wonderful. What an encouragement. For Paul, this proper order is not in any way an issue of superior or inferior relationship between men and women, but one of proper order, honor, preeminence as ordered by God's good creational design. So then, to the degree that men are heads of their homes, they are representative heads of their homes. Ephesians 5, we will see that in Ephesians 5. Or to the degree that men only, or qualified men only, should serve as pastors and elders, as we believe here at Grace Church, like 1 Timothy 3, is merely a properly ordered representative headship here in this church. Why? Because Christ is the head of this church, not me, not the elders. We are representative for this particular local congregation, in a mitigated way. This divine ordering is one that displays honor, and it displays the goodness of God to the world. That's what Paul's getting at. And so that's why he says in verse 10, another thorny verse. Surprise, right? This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is not saying that a woman has to walk around with a symbol of authority over her head from her husband what this is saying is because i think the more as we've read through this correctly i think hopefully clearly paul sees a real authority for redeemed men and women to pray and prophesy in various ways within the that are differentiated from the office of pastor and elder for, for sure for them either to engage in ministry within the church they must be properly ordered and they must be able to give visibility to god's great creational design this is what he's trying to get at and then he says there at the end, because of the angels. And that seems weird. What does he mean by that? Well, First Peter says that the angels longed for what we have, right? So maybe we put these two verses together, as many commentators do, and what is unfolds is it testifies to the angels of the glory of God. Something that the angels could never know themselves because they're not human, they're not made in the image of God, and they're testifying to the world the goodness of God in his creation and these people who bear his image. It testifies not only to the world, but to the very angels themselves. But he's very quick to say, and again, in case you have not heard this from Paul and you are wanting to read something else in this passage, in the Lord, however, the woman is not independent of man, nor the man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes, from, comes through the woman, and all things come from God. So just again, in your case here, Paul is, is saying Look at the beauty of how God's designed this thing. Behold your God. That's what he's saying here. It's not about men. It's not about women. It's about God. It's about seeing God in his glory and how he beautifully pulls, puts things together. All things are about God. And then he lands the plane. He kind of puts the matter to rest here concerning public worship. And here's his big crescendo. Bring glory to God, friends in your worship, not yourselves. That's what Paul's aim is. Judge for yourself, he says, verse 13. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If everyone wants to argue about these things, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God so Paul puts the final little cherry on top here if, if you're if you're in, unconvinced of a biblical argument he gives an argument from natural observation doesn't even nature teach as he says perhaps you're not convinced the Bible is clear on this issue well doesn't nature doesn't your observations about things around you uh, tend to, to lead you to the same conclusion he says and so by saying nature here, he's not making, as I think most commentators agree, he's not making a kind of um, a, 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 a teaching about a law on, of nature when it comes to head, I mean, hair length, okay? Certainly throughout history in different cultures, men and women had longer, shorter hair. That's not the issue Paul, it's not the point Paul is trying to make here, but he's pleading to just observations from social norms around you from his own context around him about social distinctions aren't they obvious to you he's not making a rule I mean because even Nazarite vows remember those yeah this is not Paul saying that emphatically nature calls men to have short hair and women to have long hair he is simply making an observation from the relative social decorum of his day and by and large and we would even say this today probably right Men, by and large, men have shorter hair, and by and large, women have longer hair, but he makes the no point. Doesn't the woman's hair reflect something of her beauty and her glory? The tradition of honor and glory being displayed in the interdependent, distinctive order inherent in creation among men and women is so important to us, and it's still important to us today. I mean, think about how weird our world is. I said this to a man the other day. I said we just live in a very weird world and you know i mean i get that i know we know the world's broken but i was like it just it's gotten crazy weird the last five to ten years yes and it's like i I don't understand it and we're not here to talk about that this morning but just really and so paul wants to make the point clear we said it earlier we'll say it again redeem men and women in the church we need to seek to glorify god and honor him in public worship As we honor the beautiful ordering of creation that He has instilled in men and women with interdependency for one another, yet distinctly from one another, that's inherent in His good design. Yeah. So now, what do we do with that? What do we do with the takeaway? I'm going to try to go fairly fast now. Number one, we need to honor the representative heads that God has ordered in creation and the church, and understand they're beautiful. And they provide a powerful witness to the world. Creational order reminds men that our role is one of humble and sacrificial service. You and I, brothers and brothers, I want to say this right now, you and I are not called to be Viking conquerors who wield our axes over our puny little villages like a bunch of Neanderthals. That's not our call. Creational order calls us to care and protect and to be humble. And it warns us off the abuse of what Peter says, the weaker sex. And to take advantage of women and to see them as second chair and to see them as possessions. They are not these things. Women are to be honored. They're to be cherished. They're to be protected in the body of Christ. And they are to be contributors alongside us in proper ways in the work and mission of the church. But it's not just that. Two, we must recognize because of that the distinctive and independent relationship of men that aids in imaging God's glory to the world. That God has designed it this way. That, that, that we recognize the gifts and investments of both men and women in the church. And it's vital. Whatever we are to make of this, and we can have that debate another time, the ministry of prophecy, the ministry of prayer in the local church... It's clear that Paul includes women in some way or shape or form in that. And we have to wrestle with 1 Corinthians 14, and we have to wrestle with 1 Timothy uh, 2. We have to wrestle with those texts because those are Paul's teachings as well. But it doesn't, but but at minimum, it says this Women are called to know theology as much as men. And women are called to use their theology as much as men. Because you're going to be sent into different contexts too. And so it's not just for the nerds who sit around reading John Calvin all day. Like, get in your word and be taught this and we should be teaching one another these things and encouraging one another in these things. We must recognize this. Uh, um, I'll go so far as to say this. Um, the fir- in the first century church, there was no children's ministries. And there weren't women's ministries. They were just one ministry, and they ministered and cared and mutually cared for one another in that context. So we got to wrestle with this text in light of that, not these things, these modern things that we do here. I'm happy to say this, and I'm just going to brag for a moment. I have this written in here, by the way. This is not an extemporaneous thought. I actually have it written in here. I'm married to a solid theologian. She's called me off the cliff on so many stupid things. Our first date is enigmatic of that. Uh, I said to her, because I was too afraid to kind of hedge my bet at the time, that I'm, I'm, I'm fully Calvinistic and Armenian at the same time. You know what she said to me? That's stupid. <laughs> and she's right. That's just stupid. First date, by the way. I knew I wanted to marry her right then. It was awesome. It was amazing. But she's been a spring for, for thinking through the Christian life together with our ministry among unbelievers and soccer and other places the Lord's led us, raising three boys, serving four churches together, three of which have been church plants. Couldn't have done it without her, guys. Wouldn't have done it without her. But it's also a respect for social decorum in our culture. When we think about these distinctive and independent roles, we want to make sure we understand that. Like Paul, this sees nothing wrong with defending good tradition, good aspects of tradition that show forth the good order of creation in society. We shouldn't jettison those things. Our culture is really quick to jettison these things, are they not? What a man should wear, what a woman should wear. Like men, dress like men. Women, dress like women. And do so in a way that honors and glorifies God. It's just that simple. This should not be that easy be that hard to figure out. This, of course, means that men should not dress like women, as we see in our world today, and vice versa. But it also means that we shouldn't avoid provocative dress in ourselves that would distort the goodness of God over a well-ordered society and the institutions in that society. So we should, be, we should do things in a way that's honoring to the context. Perhaps you followed the dress code debacle in Congress lately, yeah? You know I'm talking about, John Fetterman and him wearing you know, uh hoodies to Congress and do all that kind of stuff. Now you know me, if some of you guys know me, it's like during the week, like I'm wearing my soccer garb, I'm wearing my hoodie and whatever else. But friends, there's just there's context for everything. If I go to a funeral, I go to a wedding, I'm wearing what I need to wear. If I wear a scare, I wanna do be to the context of what's here. This is not a this is not a call for us to all start wearing suits or me to wear robes, although a geneva room would be pretty awesome. Okay? Um and don't be surprised one day if I walk up here with one on, all right? Um, but I digress. Let's honor these things. Last, and the main point, and we're going to the Lord's Supper together, we need to pursue a high regard for rightly ordered, biblically informed public worship. If we take away, if one takeaway you get from this sermon is this, it has to be this point, that, uh, that, we, that um, we are not, in any way free to make worship whatever we want to make it. We should be wary of cultural novelty masked as Christian revivalism and pietism. If there's going to be a great retrieval in a local church, it has to be this. All worship in the church should be well-ordered, Christ-centered, and intensely focused on bringing God the glory, not ourselves. Amen. I will end it there and trust that the Lord will use this text as he wishes for us today. Father, this morning as we come to your word, come to the table here in a few moments and we prepare ourselves to shine forth your glory as the church this morning, as you've designed us and we are sharing this table together. Father, may you be more intensely glorified this morning than we would have otherwise and that we'd be more mindful of this privilege we have to do so. And we love you, Jesus and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.